You're listening to K-Squid, Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. Many voices, community radio. This is Story Behind the Story. I'm your host, Clara Shirley Appel, and my guest today is author Kamala Puligandla. She's the author of two books, Zigzags, which came out late last year, and a new novella, You Can Find Me on My Femme Phone, which came out earlier this month and is the topic of our conversation today. While she currently lives in Los Angeles, where, according to her website, she eats, snobs, wears elastic-waisted pants, skulks around the farmer's market, attempts to go to the Y, swipes on Tinder, and thrifts for flair that makes style pop, she is a Bay Area native originally hailing from Oakland. Kamala Puligandla, welcome to Story Behind the Story. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Oh, good. Uh, well, first of all, I loved this book, and I can't wait for us to like dive into it. So I think we'll just go ahead and do this. Both this and your last book, Zigzags, could aptly be described as queer coming-of-age stories, though I, I think it's important to mention that these are not coming-out stories or stories of people realizing or reconciling themselves to their queerness. They are past that point. What makes a queer coming-of-age story like this, or like Zigzags, different from a heterosexual coming-of-age story? I think that's a really good question. Um, well, I think coming-of-age can mean a lot of different things, and so... I do think one of the things inherent in a queer identity is that because there are very few, I mean, there are plenty, depending on what subculture you're in, but there are very few like standard sets of things that you have to make or that mm-hmm. you have to meet in order to, you know, achieve various levels of adulthood. So I think we all have really clear ideas of what those milestones are in heteronormative culture. So it's like, it can be like relationships, like milestones, it can be children, it can be like property purchasing. It could be all these different things. And not to say that those don't come into play into a queer adulthood, but I think coming of age often includes this part of yourself where you have to be like, who am I within the world? Like, what kind of world do I want to live in? Who do I want to be in it? Um, How do I want to relate to people? And then what are the sorts of structures I do want to build in a more permanent fashion in my life? And there's something about, I think, being queer where those get redone like all the time. (laughs) <laughs> you'll be like, oh, I learned something new or I had a new experience. And now I have to redo all these things. And I think part of it is this idea is that like you are, you're continually growing. And I think in my queer communities, for sure, um, there's just like, you're always continually growing. So you're always collecting new ideas and new experiences and that it would be, it would feel foolish for you to not integrate those things into how you live on a regular basis. So I think for me, the main difference is the idea that what the end goal is, is always shifting. Mm. Um, And not to say that straight people don't grow, that's like ridiculous. But um, I think there is a way that heteronormative culture sort of sets those things out for you ahead of time. And to move away from those allows you a million different like reinventions of yourself. Well, I think that's really interesting. And and you see that also in another very important aspect of this book, um, which is the way it sort of handles friendship. The three main characters in the story, Veronica, Phoebe, and Remy, they're incredibly close, incredibly connected, and yet they're also very much their own people. So it's it's a different, it's not a codependent view of friendship. It is very much them sort of establishing their identity and then like in, finding ways to integrate each other um, into their lives and to integrate the like new information in their lives into each other. How do you balance that sort of tension between the the closeness of of friendships or of community and the sort of need for independence and a separate identity in your writing? I think that there's a way. So I think that I unintentionally create these really, really 
um, involved worlds. Hmm. And I think more often than not, the worlds are what's tying the characters together. In this one in particular, I wanted them to share a certain kind of intimacy because I think that they're, especially at that time, this was like, I think I wrote this like around 2017, 2018. Hmm. I was really, really excited by the idea that your friends could be like your most intimate relationships and that um, people should like build around that. And like, you could Hmm. have a lot of flexible things happening in your life if that's how you arranged it. But that also meant, of course, everyone needed independence to pursue other things. So I think in the writing itself, I like to give each character a little journey and, you know, every character has to have some motivation that's pulling them through it anyway. And I sort of like when they're separate because then you get to go on these little more journeys than just, you know, all of them together in one path. Um, So with this book in particular, I was like, let's give all of them sort of like slightly different things they're trying to pursue and like let them pursue them in this world that does contain all of their things. So Mm. you can sort of the repercussions of them playing off each other. Yeah, yeah, I really like that. And I think there's also, right, what you were saying about how the goalposts are different in in sort of life for straight sort of heteronormative culture versus in queer culture. I think that sort of centrality of friendship as a, as a relationship compared to, say, romantic relationships or um, parent-child relationships is also something that I, I at least associate really strongly with the queer communities that I'm a part of. Yeah, I mean, for sure, because I think there are lots of ways that we are, like, totally open to the complete flexibility of what friendship means hmm. um, in a way that we're not so much in other kinds of relationships that usually have, even if people are very flexible about that and like do have some kind of role attached. Like people have expectations of what parents do and we're like pretty socially like, you know, all together on what those things should be. Even if there are like rifts between those kinds of groups, we sort of, we're like, these people care for other people. Like that's what parents do. So I think in friendships, not to say that like, I think in friendships we have a similar thing, like you support each other, you care for each other, but sort of the actions you can take to do that are, incredibly wide open. They could be anything. And the cadence of it does not have to be set at all. So of course, right, for all these reasons, you have explored friendship a lot in your writing, both in this book and in your previous one. Has exploring it in that way, has sort of writing different types of friendships into being, has it changed your understanding of friendship and its mechanics in real life? Oh, yeah. I mean, my work and my writing are are just like totally intertwined. So yes, absolutely. And it's really interesting because I'll I usually start writing something that I think that I'm experiencing in my life and more often than not the story is sort of what determines like the path I take through the story is what determines the outcome in my real life. Oh, how funny. And the outcome always comes, you know, later because I write it and I'm like, "Oh, this is the revelation I was having about like this particular relationship." But yeah, I I would say that in so many ways there I am writing my like the my own future. <laughs> Whether I like it or not because I think it's hard once you've come to a certain revelation about a particular relationship even if it's fictional. Um there are certain lessons you take away and like how can you not carry those into your life, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the first things that I noticed as I started reading You Can Vibe Me on Your Femme Phone is just how funny it is, right? Like, humor is infused in every page, and yet it's it's not a snarky humor. To the extent that you're satirizing your characters, they're in on the joke. It's very sincere. Talk to me about the role that humor plays in your writing. What purpose is it serving in this book and maybe more broadly? 
I think that humor is always there to, um, I, I actually think of it as a form of self-reflection hmm. and that when you are able to really go deeply into a joke, when you, whenever you make fun of something, you're allowing yourself to like step back away from it and be like, what is my relationship to this thing? And like, how absurd is this thing? Or like, what is this thing? Um, so in this particular book, I just, I wanted to use humor because I wanted to talk about feminism in a way that, I mean, I can't, there are ways in which feminism is really hard to take seriously. <laughs> um, even as someone who like fully embodies it like all the time, but it's just like, it's still absurd. The notion that like, we have to like create a movement around the idea that like, you know, humans should be treated equally. Like that's, yeah. that's a weird, that's weird. <laughs> and I think that humor allows you to like take something that could be sort of depressing or an obstacle or challenging and throw it in a different light. So I like that. But I also wanted to use it in this book to talk about the sort of commodified feminism. Yeah. And use that, you know, like, we're gonna laugh at it and make fun of it, not to say that it shouldn't exist, or that it doesn't have value. But that there's other stuff, there's other things that are happening that might be like more rooted in actual feminist ideals. So th that's sort of where I was taking the humor in this book. I thought I kept coming back to that sort of that opening paragraph, those opening lines where Veronica is and you'll read this later, but where Veronica is sort of expre expressing her skepticism about the femme phone as this sort of technocratic solution to <laughs> everything, to feminism, to whatever. And she, she talks about it in those terms as being this sort of or her skepticism is framed as this is for white people. It's for people who think that like femininity is entirely tied up in being a mother, like those sorts of things. And what's interesting is that, well, I think we see a lot about the way that she engages with the, with the femme phone and how it sort of, how, how she integrates it into her life and how she maybe has a different relationship for, with it from what she expected. It's not clear to me that she ever comes, like draws conclusions about that. What do you think about that? I think that anytime I have this reaction, anytime anything is like meant for women, I'm skeptical of like mm -hmm. why, because I'm always like, what, why can't it just be a thing? And then like, if it's actually good for like any particular group of people, they'll just use it. So I think that that was her initial response is my initial response to things that are like set out to be different. And it just reminds me of like when Bic had like pens for women or something and you're like, I don't really, this is like, this is the antithesis of feminism. Like, you know, everyone can, like anyone can use a pen. So I think that was where it started out. I think at the end, she does have a reckoning with what any form of technology can do for a person. And I think that in such that like she imagined it was going to be directing her or guiding her or pushing her to be something in particular. I think she finds out that that's not true. Um, but she also has things ingrained in her from just like being alive in society that are things that she has to grapple with too. And so the phone doesn't like heal those or like remove those. Hmm. Um, and so I think actually someone probably could use the phone and like be all those people that she was like, you know, feeling disparaging. Yeah, of. Yeah. I think those people could also use the phone and benefit from it. <laughs> well, I think this sort of brings up an interesting point, which is that most of the conflict in this book is internal. It's musings on the sort of mismatch between a person's stated desires and their actual desires as determined by their behavior or whatever, um, or between a character's radical beliefs and values and their readiness to 
to sort of do what it takes to to sacrifice the things that are required of them to make those into reality in their own life. And many of these tensions are revealed by the femme phone and particularly by Veronica's uh, many conversations with her phone, which I just found like so delightful. Why is that? What role is the phone itself playing that the real people in this story can't play either for themselves or for each other? I don't know. I think there's a couple of things going on. So one of them is that like, I do think that the people would like to play these roles for each other. And I think that there is a sense of like someone not being a person being not as available as like your personal technology. Who's Mm. like, they're only like the only purpose of the phone is to like (laughs) gather your information and help you. So I was like, Oh, it's sort of like having an assistant, but it would be, I think it would be hard for somebody else who's a real person. And this is something I think about all the time. Like, who else knows your relationships as deeply as you do as, as like who is in your texts and like your messages with everyone. And there is something about a phone that's able to be like privy to all kinds of different media that you're sending that even if I were to like send every text like of my current relationship to somebody else and talk about it with them, they wouldn't, they wouldn't just like, you know, I guess digest it in the same way that some, some digital program could. So I think there's like that going on. But I also think that like anytime you use anything to like record yourself, it's also a form of reflection. Hmm. And so it doesn't have to be a phone. It could have been like literally anything. It could have been a journal. Um, But I think anytime anyone's trying to be like, okay, like let's keep track of myself. It is a way of being like, oh, and then when they reflect on the reflection, that's like a whole other level of showing who they are. And so I guess in some way, the like writer in me wants to be like, oh, like this was a really nice way of like having someone record themselves and document themselves and reflect on the reflection um, in order to come away with what their actual internal struggles were. Um, And the phone just happens to be like a character that's, you know, kind of snipey and good (laughs) at it. And the phone can deliver these sort of like impartial messages um, (laughs) that are just data based, uh, which they're not totally, but. that people, we always assume people are sharing their opinion because it's really hard for people to not. (laughs) You mentioned world building earlier when you were, you were sort of talking about the fact that you create these sort of really rich worlds. How do you think about world building when you're writing or plotting things out? I think the honest truth is that I I don't think about it. And people have told me on multiple occasions that what they enjoy about my writing is that I don't explain what's happening. Mm, You just sort of immerse yourself into it and you are then presented with things that you, I guess, I guess my favorite way to create a world is you learn how, how to regard something in a world based on how the characters react to it. And so if a character is presented with something that you don't know how to take and they don't seem really like, you know, ruffled by it at all, like that's how you learn that it's like normal. So I think that that's kind of how I take it in terms of like what I put into the world or what I like to like, yeah, what I like to bring into the world. To me, it's always something that like an insular small social group has like decided is important because I think that's like, those are like the weirdest worlds to create. And I love to imagine if like everyone shared like the same kind of small reality as like whatever my friends are like obsessed with in the moment. Hmm. So I think that's kind of where I get a lot of these story worlds from. But I like them to feel familiar because I don't want them to feel exclusive or like a person couldn't 
like enter it and figure like, you know, get oriented in it, even though I'm not explaining anything. Well, so that's, I think, a good question. How do you how do you accomplish that? If you are not explaining things, how do you create? Because I think it's very successful. How do you create this world that is still inviting to people who may, who have a very different experience? Um, I think that I, I, I still, I think like in some, like, you know, I think if we're talking about like speculative fiction or fantasy and sci-fi. Some people are building entirely new processes for how the world functions. Hmm. And I'm really using what I consider like, you know, pretty universal life at this time right now. And then just like cr- putting like some like costumes on top of them hmm. to like them into a slightly different dimension. So I'm just sort of like opening them up a little bit. And I think that it's not a full departure from our world. It's more just like you're walking into this like weird, hazy area. Um, so that's kind of what I like to keep is this those little intersections between what is perfectly understood and universally known mixed with just like this tinge of something kind of strange or unusual. Um, because that's, I think, where where I, I find the most interesting stories to tell, too. Yeah, I, I like that approach of I, I like the idea of like putting costumes on everyday life. Right. And it's sort of just like pushing ahead certain things for this. I'm like, the phone is not it's still a phone. It's like a phone as we know it. It's just like wearing a costume of like a different kind of phone. Yeah, I do think that's also right. It's it's sort of an interesting thing to bring out, especially thinking about the fact that you are you're from the Bay Area. You live in L.A. These are two communities that have been very impacted by the tech industry. And I think also a lot of like queer communities and a lot of communities of color have really complicated relationships with the tech industry and the technology it produces. So I think there's something to me that feels very profound about even just saying this is just technology, right? <laughs> like this is just a tool and it can be it can be used in all of these different ways. Yeah, I mean, I I started writing this book when I was working for a tech company. And I learned like lots of different things that you could do. And it was, it, ba- it still to this day baffles me that like the technology that we have and that we decide to use it for like selling people things of all the things. And like we use it for many other things too. So I don't want to just like totally relegate it. But like we have so much information, we have so much ability. And I think it's really, it's, I think it just speaks a lot to our society that we're like, what we're going to do with it we're going to build this visual platform where mostly people shop and it's like you know we can do a million yeah yeah exactly like it's just replicating things we know just like in a different format um but especially with information about people and their interests and what they like i was working in marketing so we would collect all kinds of data about that and you know there are all kinds of insignificant actions you take every day that like express your interest in things and i was like this is kind of amazing because we have this treasure trove of what people are interested in and like what if we used it to do something else like what if they had access to it mm. themselves so they could be like here is what i am expressing interest in um and then could notice and could be like well actually i don't really want to be interested in that or like, why am I interested in this? Or maybe I have a different interest that I would like to be guided toward. And like, since we're already guiding people's interests, there are so many different ways that that could be done or accomplished. Yeah, yeah. yeah and I mean, I think that is like that's a very noticeable thing about the phone phone is that it's it's not selling you things, right? There are no 
products that it hawks <laughs> or like it is but it's trying to sell you i think i think of it in the way that you're like oh i want to help out like you know like there's a taco cart that i like i'm gonna make sure i go to that guy oh, like yeah. you could have that sort of thing like in your phone because we are all gonna buy things like that's just how <laughs> it is so i do think of it as like sort of you could tell it what kind of priorities you have tune in to ksqd this sunday for state of mind hosted by licensed psychotherapist deborah sloss Her guests are mental health crisis response expert James Russell and volunteer mental health advocates Jennifer Wentworth and Kathy Pereira. James describes mental health response systems and gives tips about how best to use them, while Jennifer and Kathy describe their firsthand experience using mental health crisis services for themselves and family members. They demonstrate that mental health recovery is possible and give specific suggestions to help others get started in that direction. This show includes a helpful set of locally oriented resources. Join us for new understandings and seeds of possibility on State of Mind, Sunday evening at 6 p.m. here on KSQD 90.7 FM and ksqd.org. Many voices, one station. If you're just joining me, my guest today is author Kamala Puligandla, whose novella, You Can Vibe Me on My Femme Phone, came out earlier this month. Well, I think this is a good time to have you read a little bit from the book and um, help ground listeners in all the things that we've been talking about. Before you do, why don't you set up the excerpts that you're going to read? Just tell us about what we're going to hear. I'm going to read from the beginning, which, you know, is sort of an intro both to the phone and also to our characters and their world and their friend group. Cool. Sounds good. When the femme phone first came out, claiming to bring my own feminist agenda to personal technology, I was skeptical, to say the least. I was positive that shit was for straight women, white women, the kind who thought that breast cancer still needed more awareness raised, and that motherhood was the pinnacle of femininity. To be fair, I could revel in a Maggie Nelson meditation on white motherhood for hours, but I still didn't think I needed that as my operating system. My friends, on the other hand, were all in. Phoebe was always sending me strings of emojis I'd never seen before telling me to bow down and worship her goddess pussy. It wasn't like I didn't have any need for that. I did. But I also had words at my disposal. Yes, your highness, I'd respond. I would be honored to pray at your righteous honey hole. Right after it picks up your wig collection from my apartment. You said you'd do it two weeks ago, and you know how I feel about unattached hair. Phoebe's femphone, sensing my passive aggression, would automatically respond with something along the lines of, My mind, like my body, is a temple. Act accordingly. And if I kept it up, I'd soon be met with a snippet of rupee core, serving some passive aggression about how the human heart only grows stronger when put through pain. Meanwhile, in all of my communications with Remy, the phrases, sure, and yes, bish, and oh, you know, triggered a set of terms and conditions that I had to agree to in order to see the rest of the message. I appreciated the level of consent, but every time I wanted to know if he liked my new shirt or if he had fucked someone from the party last night, I had to agree to understand that any affirmative response was ephemeral and flexible and only represented his feelings in the moment. This wasn't news to me and I was offended at the suggestion that I might have any less expansive expectations. You're just jealous, Remy told me as he poured sparkling wine into Phoebe's cup and then mine. We were at the lake sharing a blanket that was a little too small for the three of us. That's ridiculous, I said. 
I'm dividing heavy denial vibes about your femme phone FOMO, Phoebe chimed in. She'd only held the phone for two weeks and was already feeling extremely superior about it. I'm just skeptical, I said. Why do I feel more disconnected from my friends with femme phones? Also, don't you feel like this mass marketing of femme power flattens its very nuances? I'm not about gender essentialism. How is there a single phone for all femmes? Veronica, Remy said, you set the values for your own femme phone. It's not one size fits all, like those t-shirts second wave feminists wear claiming the future for themselves, just like a man. It guides your praxis, Phoebe added. You'll love it. Imagine if your phone shared your values instead of prodding you with its capitalist boner all the time. Here, put these violet glasses on and then see what you think. Remy, Phoebe, and I had recently purchased a set of color therapy glasses. They looked like regular plastic shades in garish bright colors. But when you put them on, they drastically altered the way that light appeared. It was like taking drugs without having to, or as we preferred, you could take a microdose of acid and then it was wild. The violet glasses were supposed to enhance my ability to self-reflect. And when I put them on, the sky glowed a deep piercing fuchsia. I felt a bright calm open up in my chest. Maybe you're right, I said, and laid back to stare at the endless expanse of sky. I have no idea what it's like to have a phone that gives a shit about me. Remy laughed. Of course you don't. We didn't know we could have that. Just you wait, Phoebe said to me. Any minute now, some woman you're obsessed with will be using a femme phone, and it'll make you love her even more, and suddenly you'll be falling all over yourself to get one too. And we'll say we told you so. Wow, rude, I said. Honey, we all know it's true, Remy cooed, and rolled me over so he and Phoebe could hug me. Thank you for that lovely reading. One thing that I think you can see immediately in that is this kind of meditative quality to this story. Things happen, they unfold in a logical way, and yet the fact that they happen is ancillary or secondary almost to the way that the characters think about their lives and their identities and the ways that they relate to one another. When you're writing a story like this, how do you think about narrative? I mean, narrative is really not something I plan out at all. So I'm always just writing. I like what I do is I think about what scenes I want to create and who I want to be in them. And then through that, I figure out like how everyone's different motivations are going to interact at any given time. So I like to change up the dynamic between like who is especially in this one, I specifically wanted three friends so they could like change their alliances mm. at all time. And um, not that the alliances are like, you know, against each other, um, but that like each pair has a certain kind of like, mm. I don't know, like a vibe that pulls them in a different direction. So that's kind of what I was thinking about. I also think I tried something different in this book that I, that I don't usually do or that I haven't done with longer pieces where I just don't describe what period of time they're in and you're just sort of like skipping around from scene to scene mm. with the implicit understanding that like, you know, some time has passed. It doesn't really matter how much. Mm. And I think that that was a really fun thing for me to do with this particular story. Do you feel like this is, I mean, it's, it's a novella. It's short. It's, it's 100 pages. How would you compare the process of writing something like this that is in that sort of shorter zone to something like your novel that is a bit more expansive? I mean, honestly, they were completely different processes because oh, yeah. I'm a very different writer. 
So I started my my first novel when I was in grad school and I was just sort of grasping. And I to this day, I'm like, I don't know if I'll ever write something so long again. But I was just grasping how I could turn a story which I can hold in my head into like this fairly expansive, you know, several hundred page narrative. And I really just thought of it at the time as writing like a very long short story. Mm. Um, and that's sort of how I moved through the novel. Uh, but I spent years working on that. Like I, I redid every character's arc several times. I like redid the places where they intersected. I like went over like, you know, how it was going to move and all these different ways. And I, the structure for it was something I laid out ahead of time. Whereas this story, um, at this point, I was just writing short stories that kept turning out supremely long. So I was like, I'm just going to write the whole thing. I'm just going to sit down and write like whatever I think happens next. And I went back to edit it and I was like, I could change all these things, but I don't know that it would be better necessarily. And there's something about the improvisational quality that Mm. makes like a fun movement through the book. And I wanted to keep that. So I sort of just like powered through it. And that's sort of how this one happened. That's wild. I think of all these little like in that passage that you read, all these little details, which I think are what you were talking about when people say you you aren't explaining things, but you're sort of showing them, <laughs> right? Um, and a big part of that sort of richness of the world building. And as you were reading it, I had I just had this memory of the fact that like every character in this book is an Aries, uh, <laughs> right? And that's it is both. So I mean, astrology was big in the seven in the sixties and seventies for, you know, maybe a different set of reasons, but now it is so associated with sort of feminist and queer feminist in particular communities. Um, But the fact that every character that gets a sign is an Aries is this kind of like, that's the the turning of that humor there, right? (laughs) Yeah, it's the turning of the humor. And it's also like, it it is like the, like, those are very, like, distinct qualities of the narrative and of the characters and they're just like <laughs> rushing into things and just like deciding and like going for it um so I did want to name that in, in the book itself because I think that's a really the whole book is sort of like an ode to queer culture in many different ways and so I just wanted to put that in there yeah tell me about the setting of this book it's clearly in in real places but there is this sort of speculative and surreal quality to it. Is this happening in the present? Is it an alternate reality? Is it the future? I always think that I'm writing in the near future, which Mm. could easily be like a parallel universe. Um, But I like to think of it as like, we're just, we're like almost there. Like this could be next year. Um, And like, if we don't arrive there next year, it's because we split off into a parallel universe. Um, The setting itself, I wanted to be, I don't know. At the time I hadn't yet moved to LA and I was like planning to, and I was just really enamored with all these different pieces of it that I, where I'd spent time and I wanted to write about them. And then I also, what was weird is that when I first started writing it, it also meshed with like different things I loved about living in Oakland. (laughs) And I just sort of like moved them into this world where it's like some amorphous California of my making. (laughs) Like a demolition man. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I was just like, we'll just like pull from here and then we'll have here. And I don't know. I think something about setting that I, I, I don't take geographic setting very seriously. Like Hmm. I'm like, I think it's good to have little gestures so people aren't lost, but I think like the actual 
place, like knowing it or like your own knowledge and recollection of it or familiarity with it, like is unnecessary. And I don't think it should be necessary to like understand any narrative, but particularly you don't need it to understand mine. So I guess the setting is one where I'm like, we're almost there. It's familiar. It works similarly to our lives, but it's definitely running with like slightly different rules. Like lots of things that you don't expect could just show up. And like, that's sort of the fun of it. In the vision that you present here of this sort of near future, would you describe that as utopian? No, I don't think it's utopian. I think what's happening in it is that um, people love to talk about like the like bubble worlds that we live in. Hmm. And I, in some ways, just think of this as a bubble. Like this is a bubble where we don't have anything like super different pierce it um, hmm. because that's not a thing that our characters like have to do on a regular basis. But in my mind, it's not a utopia. It's just like, it's this particular scene. I think of it as like a scene um, where like anyone else could pop into it. It's just that they don't happen to encounter those people. And I think part of that is intentional on my part, where I think that as a queer person, as a person of color, as a person who's like mixed, I'm like, I wish that I could live in an uninterrupted bubble of hmm. my own experience. And because I can't, I just write them. Um, and I don't let anybody else come and interrupt it. Like, this is the norm. And if, like, something's going to be outside of it, like, I might allude to it. But in a shorter in a shorter piece like this, like, that's not going to be what takes precedence. Yeah. It's in the process of creating, right, you get to carve out those spaces for yourself that are uninterrupted. Yeah. yeah. I think you talked about this a little bit earlier, but I- I'm sort of curious to hear you expand. Mm-hmm. Where did the idea of the femphone come from? Well, I think there's a... I think that, yes, in one part, it came from my marketing work that I was doing, but a lot of it also came much earlier when, um, I think I was, like, in college and, like, post-college when, like, so much of, like, the flirtation and, like, beginnings of new relationships that were romantic took place via text, and I just remember thinking how weird it was that my phone had access to all of the things that I would say to people and, like, who I was in Hmm. these various relationships that, like, really at that time nobody else did because I wasn't like telling everyone what I was texting people um and so at that point I was like oh it is very interesting like this phone has a collection of like memories or like uh, if you could take all of my phones you know from the past what like 10 20 years they would have this narrative to tell about like who I am in intimate relationships that like I'm not even aware of so that was also another part of it in addition to like data on other people and like guiding people in their lives. Um, it's also just like your phone is this, this document of all the things that you do. And I was like, Whoa, that could be really cool in terms of personal relationships, like learning about that. You sort of mentioned that a, a couple of times that the sort of insight, the unique insight that a phone, which is, sort of mostly an inanimate object sort of has with you. And I, you, you talked too about sort of creating this phone as a character in some ways a sort of fourth and I guess fifth and sixth prong to this friend group um, that exists. Can you, can you talk about that, about the sort of dynamic of uh, their interactions with their phone and how it affects their interactions with each other? Yeah. I, th- I think that one of the things I thought the phone could do was sort of, I mean, it can be your go-to 
for things that don't necessarily require the attention, like the full attention of another conscious human being. So I think about this sometimes where you're like, oh, I just need someone to like bounce an idea off of. And there are times like you are not using the person to actually use their full being to like be in conversation with you. You use them because you have a specific thing you need from them, which is just to be listened to. And I think there are various kinds of needs that are interactive like that, that not so that people like shouldn't have them with other people, but like you could have it with an object and the object could be perfectly suitable for it. So I think among them, um, I was thinking of each of their phones as sort of amplifying their own personalities or amplifying their own motivations. In some ways, it tightens the tension between them because Mm -hmm. their phone reminds them that the other people don't carry that same motivation as strongly as they do. Hmm. Um, But in other ways, it's able to hold into account, like take into account and hold the interests of the other characters in a way that a character who's like very emotionally involved in a moment might not be able to. So I think it sort of acts as like, I'm like, if you, it it sort of does just act like if you had a couple extra people in the friend group, but but the phone is sort of, the phone doesn't have any investment in this particular friend group. Like should any of the characters ditch all their friends and get new ones? Um, the, yeah, phone the phone doesn't like, care. <laughs> right, the phone's like, great, you want new friends. So I do think for the narrative is like sort of having an impartial person like there all the time to just like reflect. You talked also about discovering discovering the voice of this particular story and how it's different from uh, from your from the voice in your novel, Zigzags. And I, I sort of connecting that with what you were saying earlier about the sort of queer coming of age story and about um, in queer communities, right? Reinventing yourself and and changing the mileposts. Do you feel like this is a voice that you're like, oh, this feels authentically me. I'm going to be using it over and over again. Or do you feel like you're going to be doing that sort of reinvention as you continue to write? I mean, honestly, I hope to be doing um, reinvention forever because otherwise I feel like the art making gets tired. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but no, this is, I, al- I also do feel like um, all my voices and all the things fit within a certain kind of trajectory. And yeah, the, the novel is like, was me figuring out just how to be me authentically. And I think that I've moved into a space where I can be different kinds of me's in a performative way that's still true to who I am, but offers maybe like, you know, it gives you a little more space between me as an actual person and then me as a character being presented which I think is more fun for the reader. I'm just like, I don't think I could write like another novel that's so directly about me again, like as Mm -hmm. the writer of it. Um, I spent years, it it meant that I spent years reflecting on a really particular period in my life that maintained interest to me for like several years that I don't know I would feel the same (laughs) way about before. There's there's only so, there's only so many things we can draw from that don't just make us want to you know hit ourselves upside the head, <laughs> right? Or I'm like, what would be you know? Because in some ways that novel, I'm after you read it, I'd be curious what you think. But like that novel isn't the themes are not so different from the ones here. They're just like a slightly different advanced version. Like once you've already decided who you are, you're still left with this idea that like you need to grow and become somebody else, or you mm-hmm. want to grow and become somebody else. And, like, there are just different ways to approach that depending on what part of your life you're in. Yeah. 
Join KSQD Sunday evening at 5 and Tuesday morning at 6 for Sustainability Now, when host Ronnie Lipschitz welcomes Michelle Merrill, anthropologist and sustainability educator. They'll discuss Nova Sutras, which Dr. Merrill founded as an egalitarian movement with scientific sensibilities, especially needed in the face of looming environmental challenges. That's Sunday from 5 to 6 p.m. and Tuesday from 6 to 7 a.m. here on KSQD 90.7 FM and ksqd.org. Many voices, one station. This week, creative bandwidth goes to Hollywood as we salute the best music to emerge from movie soundtracks and also celebrate the life of one of Hollywood's most unsung stars. Eric Nelson welcomes author and historian Arlie Proctor to talk about his amazing new book, The Atomic Bombshell. You'll learn some Hollywood star tales that are almost too unbelievable to possibly be true. Join us to sing in the rain, gamble at the Casino Royale, ghost bust, and find out just what happens when doves cry. Saturday at noon on Creative Bandwidth, only on K-Squid, 90.7 FM and ksqd.org. Many voices, one station. If you're just joining me, my guest today is author Kamala Puligandla, whose novella, You Can Vibe Me on My Femphone, came out earlier this month. What are you interested in reading? What do you look for in the stories that you consume? I think that's, I wish I had like some strong thing. It's like whatever looks cool, whatever all my friends are talking about. <laughs> so I haven't been reading too much fiction. I Well, okay, there's a couple of things. So I have a whole bunch of books that I got for Christmas that I just haven't gotten into yet. And one of them is this book called Earthlings by Sayaka Murata, hmm. who wrote this book called, I think it was like the convenience store. Convenience store book. woman. Yes. Yeah. The convenience I love that woman. book. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. So I'm, I'm always looking for weird shit and my sister loves reading weird shit too. And she read that and was like, you have to read this. So I loved it. And that also like similarly to me has like really particular worlds and strange things that happens, but like, you know, really like related to our, familiar world so that um i also just like reading queer fiction so i'm reading the mcsweeney's queer fiction mm. um issue that just came out and um i then I'm, I'm reading a bunch of non-fiction too because i was like i should just read more about stuff <laughs> <laughs> so i'm reading glitch feminism and i was reading before that algorithms of oppression just things that i think help me um like part of it is helping me imagine um these speculative worlds that I want to fantasize about. Um, and I do need books to sort of open up my imagination. And so, yeah, and right now, oh, I'm also reading this book called Tentacle um, by someone named Rita Indiana. All of these books are right now helping me imagine like these other worlds I want to write about. Cool. One thing I saw in a couple interviews that you'd had previously is um, you said you have difficulty with endings and with letting go of work and letting it sort of live in the world and be done. Why do you think that is? It's less that I have trouble with letting it be in the world and be done. Like that part is totally, as soon as I see it printed, I'm like, oh, it's no longer mine. It belongs to everybody. <laughs> but I think I have trouble with the idea of like where a story ends just because I think that like endings are so, um, they're so fake in some ways. Hmm. Um, and they're like a huge tech, like there's such a, there's such a piece and a tool of fiction, right? Like creating an ending is like one of the most performative things that we do in writing hmm. um, because in real life, so many things don't end and like, what is time even? So I think to like decide on what, what an ending is 
for any story, I don't know, is fraught. This one I particularly had a, <laughs> a difficult time with because I was like, to end it is to close off all the places that I've just opened up and sent my characters off into. And I don't want you to not think about those. Like, I want you to think about all of those, like long after the book is done. Um, and so I think in some ways I have difficulties with endings because I don't want to, I've always had a problem where I don't want to close off opportunities. Um, so I want to like leave them very gently open so that at the end, you are like guided to a particular place where then you can choose your own sort of adventure out of it. Hmm. And I think knowing when that moment is happening um, is sometimes not easy for me to find when I'm really in the story, because as far as I'm concerned, like every story I've written, I could just keep writing for like years and it would yeah. just keep going. <laughs> yeah. I like that. I like the, I, I hope someday you, you explore that a little bit more directly. <laughs> I think that would be fun. <laughs> Yeah, I'm curious about that. So what are you working on these days? Um, you know, I don't know. I've started a bunch of things. I have I have a story that I wrote. I feel like it's like in a similar-ish world to this, where I started writing about dating my clone. And <laughs> um, that one, speaking of like where I don't know, difficulties with endings, um, I started dating someone who felt really similar to me and I was like, oh no, and it's like, this is like, I don't know where the story is going to end now. <laughs> <laughs> um, because I was like, I have to incorporate all these things I'm learning. Um, and then I also have this other story where it's sort of, a, I, I don't know exactly when this happened. I think it was probably around the time of, um, yeah, 2016, like the Trump election. Did I start it then? I don't know when I started the story, but it was about this period of time on earth when there's just like not that much time left, maybe like seven years and everything like in our civilized developed capitalist culture, including like most white people decide to like live on some other planet. And there's mm -hmm. a group of people who stay behind to sort of live out whatever dreams or fantasies they had in their earth life that like were never possible because of all the systems in place. Um, so it's like directly about like building the fantastical world mm. that you want to live in. Um, and I have, I have come at it from a few different angles and I'm not sure where, what it's going to be yet or like what its central questions are yet. I'm just like playing around with characters in the world. Um, but I'm hoping that will become another novel. I think that maybe could happen. Cool. So, well, I think this is a very inviting and welcoming story that, that anyone can enjoy. It also feels like there is a specific audience. Who do you see as the audience of this? And what are you hoping that they will take away from it? I think that I've always said that my like I'm writing for myself. And this one feels like the most myself that I've ever written for. Um, but with, you know, with that in mind... I also, there are lots of people who live like not dissimilarly for me. So I specifically for people who live in queer communities like this um, and who are on their phone a lot and who are, who don't see technology as like the antithesis of um, who they want to be and how they want to live, but are like, why, why is it happening like this? So I think that's the main audience that I had in mind I am definitely curious, like, what you took away from this. I do think you are actually who I wrote this book for in many ways, too. Well, I think it's, you know, there's there's a lot of things that I took away from this. I mean, one is just, I think the humor is a takeaway in it in itself, right? For me, the experience of reading something that is um, both so sincere 
and also like so so funny and I think like you said kind of bordering on satirical like satirizing itself I think that's that's the thing that I really love in the communities that I'm part of both the queer communities that I'm part of and like all of the other communities that I'm part of I think there's something about it's not even really the inside joke so that's part of it um there's something about the sort of invitation to be messy um, that I think is really captured in the humor there. There's another thing that I th- it's it's almost sort of stray, but I'm um, I am bisexual and I have a lot of identi- I have a lot of identities that feel sort of bi and in between. Um, and I had this I had this weird realization while I was reading your book, which I think was sort of connected to it. Um, I spent some time living in Istanbul, which is a city that is literally on two continents, like uh, European and Asian. And I fell completely in love with it. And I'm sure part of it was just being there. But I remember this feeling of like uh, deeply feeling at home there, partly because of the sort of social communities I had. I was like most of my friends in Istanbul were queer. uh, And I don't even know how I lucked into finding queer communities in a place that can be so unfriendly to queer people, Um, but I did. And uh, so part of it was sort of that scene, but I think it's also something about that sort of liminal identity that I I have felt very strongly (laughs) for my entire life. So I think you do a good job. I don't I don't know if I would I don't know if I can talk about it as exactly a takeaway, but I do think this sort of exploration of identity and of uh, and of liminality, not in the same exact sense that I was talking about, but in this sort of passing between worlds, between the capitalist world and the um, sort of bubble world that you've created between um, this character working in marketing for in tech and the sort of tension she has with the parts of that that fit with her values in this sort of superficial way um, and that she's, it's a like founded by a black woman, right? Um, <laughs> and the parts that very much do not fit with her values of all, like taking these artists who sh- whose work she takes very seriously and boiling it down <laughs> into uh, these consumable trips. So I think that kind of exploration of liminality felt, it, it resonated very strongly with me. I think that makes a lot of sense because the kind of fluidity between identities and worlds is something that I know I live in like on a daily basis. And I think a lot of people do. And so, yeah, that is, that's really cool that I love that you took that away because that, that is something that I was like, Oh, I'd, I'd like to, I'd like to sort of imprint this on a world that mm. people could access. So that sounds cool. Yeah. Well, I really, I really loved this book and um, just thank you so much for joining me, for talking about it, uh, for laughing about it and for writing a book that we can, that we can laugh about. I am honestly so, so happy to hear that you enjoyed it. I, I remember when we planned this book and I was like, well, I don't know who the hell is going to buy this book, but I really like it and I hope people enjoy it. <laughs> well, Kamala Puligandla, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. To learn more about Kamala or to order a copy of You Can Vibe Me on My Fem Phone, visit kamalapuligandla.com. Catch Story Behind the Story on the first Friday of every month from 5 to 6 p.m., right here on KSQD 90.7 FM. To share your thoughts on this or other shows, drop me a line at clara at ksqd.org. The Story Behind the Story is produced for KSQD 90.7 FM by me, Clara Shirley Appel. Our sound engineer is Lanier Sammons. He also wrote our theme.
song you're listening to is Psychic Chasms by Neon Indian. Thank you. 